It was a very cruel scene, executed in an unusual manner. Cruel Coven. Hello, my little dandelions. Aww. Bee food. <laughs> bee food. Bee food. Bee food. Because I'm fucking hungry. Bee That's food. what I was thinking, not like bee. Would you like to take a bite out of my arm? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Cruel and Unusual. The podcast. My name is Tori. I'm Katie. Why are we robots? You just robe you. <laughs> You just yeeted yourself into robot land. I just <laughs> fucking catapulted my big ass. Okay. <laughs> did I already say my name is Tori? I did. And you said your name is Katie. Welcome to Cruel and Unusual, the podcast. <laughs> you guys, I'm so happy to be back on this lovely Thor Day. It's Thor Day. It's podcast day, at least for us. Um, You guys, I'm really excited today because we have a two- Parter. We got a two farter today and next week. <laughs> I'm before we get into like you know who it is and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just let you guys know right off the bat, part one. That's what you're listening to. That's what this is. Mm-hmm. That's in case you you missed it. This that's... is part one. <laughs> and for our Patreon members, our lovely lovely patreon members they're getting part two today too mm-hmm. everybody else has to wait you gotta wait till next door day you, you gotta wait till next door day but our patreon members it's gonna be you guys if you're listening if you're a patreon member it's up right now over on patreon yeah but don't listen to that first keep no. listening to this first till the very end till the very last second and then go over to patreon and see part two It'll be there. The conclusion. Mm-hmm. Even though the conclusion still leaves a lot unanswered. Just a little foreshadowing It's not for a you. conclusion. It's just a conclusion. For now. Conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a conclusion. <laughs> oh, you guys. I just wanted to let you know that this is going to take a long time for us to record. Yeah. Okay. This is going to be very long. Both it, parts are going to be long. Yes. Truly. Honestly. Sincerely. Um, and Katie and I were like, Katie was a little bit worried, you know, because she edits the pod. I do, I edit the little tiny, <laughs> little tiny baby <laughs> episodes for Patreon. She does every single week episodes that mm-hmm. we typically record for around two hours. Yeah. They're normally an hour after she's done. She edits all of those. She was a little bit worried about having two ready for today. And I was, I was like, we can do it. I know that we can. We just have to not be on our bullshit. We can do it. We've been a little bit on our bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> we, we did the convo before the convo for part yeah. one. Yeah. And then we sat and did a lot of bitching and ranting. I had to vent a little bit about um, my life. But (laughs) what I was going to say is our Patreons, here are bloopers. Mm -hmm. That's why our two hour recordings get cut down to one hour Mm -hmm. because we are on our fucking bullshit constantly. We can't stop. And those bloopers that you hear that are on Patreon are not even all of it. No. There's some where, like, I'm just in the bathroom for five minutes and the recording's still going. and Or, like, Nora's screaming or the dogs are going. Yep. There's always something. Yeah. And then, you know, dogs, Nora, Katie's pee breaks. Mm -hmm. But... And then we're just on our bullshit for a good probably 15, 20 minutes of it. Yeah. So we were talking. We're like, we just got to not do that this time. And, and we're doing through it. it. We're <laughs> doing it. Here we are. And we are here. <laughs> so <laughs> do you want me to go ahead with my article first? I, sure. It sounds like you want to. All right. Sure. I'll do it. <laughs> All right. I have a headline from dailydot.com. 
the headline okay so this is an article about a video so i'm going to share it places but i'm also just going to read it to you because it kind of recaps the whole thing okay the headline is video shows woman watching house go up in flames with someone inside oh yeah and she just stands there watching she's just chilling back she's in a lawn chair oh my this is from may 3rd 2021 and it's written by brooke Soberg. Soberg or Stroberg. Okay. A Maryland woman has been charged with attempted murder, among other charges, after investigators determined she had set her Elkton home on fire with one person inside. Gail J. Metwally is alleged to have set multiple fires. It's not funny. In her home, while one of its four residents was in the basement on Thursday at about 1.15 p.m. Eastern, according to local reports. You guys, if I laugh, it's because I'm uncomfortable usually. Yeah, the laughter completely stems from uncomfortability. Mm -hmm. And just (laughs) sometimes like unbelievability. Yeah. Is that a word? (laughs) I don't think either of those were words. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. In the video shared to Twitter from Snap by user at... Dave New World underscore two. A woman sitting in a lawn chair watching as flames engulf the house is reported to be Matt Wally. She just lit the fucking trash can on fire and dumped it in the fucking living room, says the video's unidentified creator. Oh no. In the following frame, flames can be seen through the front door. I cannot actually believe my eyes, the man <laughs> says as he's filming. No. I cannot actually believe it. And she's sitting there just chilling, watching the house go up in flames. In oh, la- my God. In a yeah, lawn chair. In a lawn chair. According what? to First State Update, Matt Wally left the scene a few minutes later. When the bystanders filming heard the screaming of a woman trapped in the home's basement. No. They assisted her in leaving through the basement, which can be seen in the video. Thank God. Met Wally was stopped near the scene by Cecil County Sheriff's Office and detained as well as transported to the Maryland State Police Northeast Barrack. Deputy State Fire Marshals responded to the incident and conducted an origin and cause investigation. Their conclusions showed that the fire was incendiary, which is defined as being intentionally lit, where a person knows fire should not be ignited. Met Wally is being held at the Cecil County Detention Center pending a hearing with the District Court Commissioner. First state update reports. Wow. Once the video was shared to Twitter, concerns about the two young men in a truck across the street from the home, one of whom was filming the incident, arose, with people questioning whether they should have done more than film the incident. Well, yeah, probably. Yeah, I would say probably that's a hard yeah. Yeah. Others pointed out that the man not filming the video was asking for the address. It sounds like the other guy was on the phone telling someone the address, I'm assuming 911. You can hear him in the background ask what the address is and then tell it to whoever is on the phone, said Twitter user at Nyan111. Wow. Yikes. And there's a little bit more. It's like um, more tweets about it, about the video speculating. But man, I, she like, lit multiple fires. And with, knew someone was inside. Yeah. With people inside and then, and then sat there and watched it. In, in a, a lawn chair. In a lawn chair. Yeah. Wow. I wonder if she was like not in her right mind. I don't know. It doesn't say anything about, you know, it doesn't say or either way. Was, yeah. Or but if that was just her regular personality. <laughs> like, she was just really, really mad. She was, I mean, that doesn't make it right, but no. it could be um, a factor, I suppose. Honestly. Okay. Wow. Wow. Gail. Okay. I'll make sure I share that article in the group. Yeah. And wherever else. So you guys can watch the video. It's a little bit wild. 
What is your article? My article is from Oxygen.com, and it is written by Jill Cederstrom. The headline is, Convicted Sex Offender is Arrested for 1983 Murder of Iranian College Student Found Stabbed to Death Under a Bridge. Wow, get him. Right? 1983. Yeah. Okay, everything I'm about to say is a quote, and I'm going to show you the photo when I'm done. Okay. Feroze Dingampore, who was 27 at the time, had been a student at the University of Nebraska at Omaha when she was found slain under a bridge in Iowa. But Leroy Christensen has just been arrested in her death. Wow. And this is from like now? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was It was just today that oh, this wow. came out. Oh, wow. Awesome. Nearly four decades after an Iranian college student was found naked and stabbed to death under an Iowa bridge, investigators have arrested a 67-year-old convicted sex offender for the brutal murder. Authorities announced the arrest of Bud Leroy Christensen, a registered sex offender from Nebraska, for the first-degree murder of 27-year-old Feroza Dengampur in a press conference Thursday streamed by local station KETV. We are relieved, we are happy, we hope that she is resting in peace after all these years, and hopefully there's some relief for her family, the victim's friend and former neighbor, Nasir al-Sheriff, told the Omaha World Herald of the arrest. Potawatomi County Attorney Matt Wilbur said Dengampur had been a student at the University of Nebraska at Omaha when she disappeared from the college campus back in 1983. Her body was later discovered by fishermen under a bridge in Pigeon Creek in nearby Council Bluffs, Iowa. An autopsy would determine Dengampur had been beaten, stabbed in the abdomen, and slashed in the throat, according to the local paper. Over the next several months, several agencies worked together to try to find Feroz's killer. Unfortunately, the case went cold, Potawatomi County Sheriff's Investigator Sergeant Jim Dottie said during the press conference. Then, in the fall of 2020, one of Feroz's friends reached out to investigators with the name of a possible suspect in the case. Investigators were quickly able to rule out that person because he had a quote-unquote solid alibi, don't they all? They always. But they discovered evidence that had been collected at the scene that could benefit from DNA analysis. Fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. The evidence, including a bra, underwear, blouse, notebooks, computer printouts, work glove, prescription glasses, beer can, and two pens, had been stored at the sheriff's office for nearly four decades. Wow. And you know what? Thank God they kept them. Right? Because a lot of the times that they stuff just... goes missing or yep. just gets thrown away. Investigators sent the items to the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation Laboratory for DNA testing and learned in March that a blood-stained glove found at the scene contained Dagenpour's DNA and that of a male. They were able to match the unidentified DNA to Christensen through the National Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS, database, according to an affidavit obtained by the newspaper. Investigators also found Christensen's fingerprints on papers that had been found near the body, authorities <laughs> said. Like, wow. Dumbass. Honestly. I mean, good. I'm glad but, you're a dumbass. And, yeah, but. and this article is very, very long and goes on for a long time. But, I mean, four decades. Yeah. This just gives a lot of hope to families who have been waiting for decades. Oh, that's him? Oh. Mm-hmm. The only downside, and the, it's wonderful that this is happening and they're able to use DNA like this. Right. Um, the only downside is these fuckers get to be out there 
For four decades. For four decades and living their lives. More. I hope they were anxious as fuck every day and I hope they looked over their shoulder and never forgot mm-hmm. what too. they fucking did. Me too. I hope that he wasn't just out killing more women. Yeah. And oh, yeah, that too. You know what I mean? And you know what? I bet anything he was. Yeah. It's amazing, though, that finally. He's finally paying and her family is getting justice. Yeah. Amazing. Now, I have a QOTDW for you. Okay. This question comes from Erica, and she wants to know what, for each of you, what is your favorite type of case to cover? So murder, mystery, disappearance, cult, conspiracy. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite if you had to choose only one? Only one? Well, I have two, so I'm going to say two. I like doing cults a lot. Uh Because it's just fascinating to me how so many people can be on the same fucked up wavelength. Yeah. You know? Yeah. How, like, how does that happen? Just how? I need to know. And I know there's research into it and, and, but it still doesn't, like, connect in my brain how that, how that happens. Hundreds of people sometimes. They brainwash it. Yeah. It's just wild to me. You have to, Um, I feel like for cults. You have to have that space in your brain, in your heart, in your body, in your mind, in your soul mm-hmm. that is open. And they find that little insecurity or they find that little whatever, like mm-hmm. your heartbreak or your whatever. And they dig into that yeah. and they use that against you. Mm-hmm. I also like doing the unsolved disappearances Yeah, a lot because it feels like, well, and unsolved murders too. But disappearances are, they really get to me. Yeah. Because you don't know. Right. You don't know if they're out there. You don't know right. if they're dead. You don't know. You have no idea. And the families don't know. I mean, when someone just vanishes. Right. It leaves so many questions. There's a lot of unanswered, like, yeah. did they leave on per There's, there's, and unsolved disappearances is one mm-hmm. of mine, too. So we'll, yeah. might as well just roll with that. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of, like, maybe 99% of you is like, no, something happened. Like somebody, she would not leave on her own. Right. But there always has to be that little tiny mm-hmm. 1% that is like, you know, did, did she abandon me? Right. Did he abandon me? Yeah. And also I feel like if we can do one thing with this podcast, it's get these cases in front of more listeners and right. have everybody share their missing posters and their descriptions or the age progression photos. Right. Something might come of it. It feels like we could do something that means something. Right. And you know, I think when we when we covered the Nikki and Ariana Fitz case, we were like, we had the age progression photo of Ariana Fitz. Mm-hmm. And we were like, it literally takes one person seeing this and being like, yeah, I saw her in a window the other day. I saw right. her riding a scooter the other day. What about you? So those? Yeah, I would, I would definitely say, yeah, no. I would definitely say unsolved disappearances. I like unsolved mm. in general as well, too. Yeah, that's kind of a polarizing thing in the true crime community. Yeah. Some people hate when they're not solved. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so mm-hmm. Erica, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. I feel like we both really like the variety. Oh, yeah, of, for sure. You know, being able to talk about murders and mysteries and conspiracies and all of those different types. Uh-huh. I don't think that we would enjoy if we only talked about one Right. One certain type of case. Right. Yeah. And I feel like we just like to shed light on a lot of them. So Mm -hmm. now I feel like we should just dive in because this is going to be a long boy. Okay. Let's go. I'm ready. So first, let me just set the scene. Okay. Tarot, Massachusetts, in a small town in the outer Cape of Cape Cod. For reference, it's about 105 miles from Boston. 
The population back in 2010 was just over 2,000 people. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So, which, I mean, obviously that's crazy tiny in comparison to cities like Boston right. and Barnstable. Tarot was actually between Provincetown and Wellfleet, two well-known areas of Cape Cod. Tarot is known today for being one of the most affluent areas or towns on the Cape. It has many rolling hills and dunes trickled along the coast. So while it's small, like population-wise, year-round, mm-hmm. during the summer months, vacationers flock to the Cape Cod area. Oh, I bet. It's beautiful. It is so beautiful there. I've never been up there. I've never been up there, but I've seen, like, especially when I was researching, so many beautiful photos. Mm-hmm. Tarot's Town Cemetery was widely talked about back in the late 60s, 1969 to be exact, Why are we gossiping about a cemetery? (laughs) Okay, because four women were murdered there. In the cemetery? Yes. Fuck. They were murdered by Tony Costa. Their names were Susan Perry, Sidney Monzon, Mary Anna Wasaki, and Susan Perry. The district attorney at the time, Edmund Dennis, told the media that, quote, the hearts of each girl had been removed from their bodies. Mm -hmm. What did he do with them? Each body was cut into as many parts as there are joints. What the fuck? End quote. Okay, I'd be gossiping about that cemetery yeah, too. Holy yeah, shit. Yeah. All right. There were teeth marks on the bodies as well. Oh my God. The media took all of that information and, as expected, ran wild. Even Kurt Vonnegut wrote about and compared Tony Costa to Jack the Ripper in his collection of essays titled Womp Eaters, Foma, and Grand Falloons. Wow, I didn't know that. Kurt spoke via letters to Tony Costa and said that, quote, The message of his letters to me was that a person as intent on being virtuous as he could not possibly have heard a fly. He believed it, end quote. Mm-hmm. You ripped hearts out of women. Yeah, and cut them up. No, no, thank you. Get back in your hole. Mm-hmm. There's a true crime book that was inspired by Tony Costa's marijuana plant garden mm. that was home to body parts of some of his victims. So that, so they were like in the soil? Yeah, and I guess grew so. pot plants? Yeah. Yeah. That's fucked up. That book is called In His Garden, and it was written by Leo Damore. So although Tarot was a fairly quiet, upscale area, it had its media attention and it had its horrors. After finding those women in the cemetery back in 1969, Tarot had kind of flown under the radar as just another small town on Cape Cod. Until, that is, January 6th of 2002. Robert and Tim Arnold, a father and son duo, headed to 50 Depot Road in Tarot at around 4.30 in the afternoon on January 6th of 2002. Tim later stated that he needed to return a flashlight to Tim's ex-girlfriend turned just friend, Krista Worthington. Krista's home at 50 Depot Road had a long, winding driveway, a clamshell driveway, which is popular for homes on Cape Cod. And Tim noticed as they pulled up that there were two newspapers sitting on the driveway's edge as he pulled in. Never a good sign no. when you're not collecting your newspapers no, unless you're no. on vacation. But then people see that and they can like rob your house. Right, exactly. Right. You're supposed to hold them. Put them on hold. So once Robert had parked the car, Tim scooped them up and headed up the driveway. Tim and Robert noticed that Krista's car was sitting in the driveway, which Tim immediately thought was a little bit odd because he had called Krista not long before 4.30 and there was no answer on her home phone. And they only live a house over from her. Oh, okay. So it's not like there was a lot of time in between. Right, right. 
So when Tim gets up the steps, he could see that the door was open, that there was a door like right off of the kitchen Mm -hmm. and it was open. It was just a little bit slightly ajar and he went in. He was calling Krista's name and it didn't take him very long to see Krista laying on the ground near the kitchen with her two and a half year old daughter, Ava, at her side. Oh, Ava looked at Tim as he called Krista's name. Oh, Ava's alive. Mm-hmm. But Krista never turned towards his beckoning. Mm. In fact, Krista didn't move at all. That poor baby. Yeah. She didn't know what to think. No, oh, my it God. Gets worse. It gets worse. Great. Yeah. Tim says that he didn't notice the blood pooling underneath Krista's lifeless body. Mm. Not at first. But he did know something was wrong because he, she obviously wasn't moving. So he immediately ran over, picked little Ava up, and brought her out to his father, Robert, who was sitting and waiting in his van. Tim said, quote, Krista is D-E-A-D, end quote. He spelled it out just in case Ava would understand the severity and the finality of what dead means. Mm. He tried going back in to call 911 from her home, but he couldn't find the home phone. So he took off for Robert's house on foot that was just next door through the little wooded area. In Tarot, and I would assume everywhere on Cape Cod for the most part, there it's a lot. It's very woodsy mm-hmm. the area, so you can't really see a lot of the homes from the road because of the woods. And each home, like in the city and in towns here, they're right on top of each other. Right in Tarot, they're a little bit spaced out. Mm-hmm. So Tim ran over to Robert's house. Once he reached his father Robert's home, he called nine one one. I don't know what happened. I think she fell down or something. I'm, I'm sure she's dead. I think she's dead. Okay, is there somebody there? I just, I'm a friend, and I just was returning a flashlight to her, and I saw a light on. Her two-year-old daughter was there nursing on her body. Okay, I'll send them right over. God, thank you. Did he say nursing on her body? Yeah, he did. But... Even more so than that. Like, that's incredibly disturbing. And we'll get to that. <sighs> that but poor the baby. Ver- I know. I know. The very first time I listened to that recording, while listening to A Killing on the Cape, which is where it's from, the number one thing that stuck out to me was the fact that the operator asked Tim Arnold if anyone was there, like with her, with Krista. Mm-hmm. And Tim said, quote, I'm a friend and I was returning a flashlight to her, end quote. But she didn't ask what you were doing there. She asked if anyone was there. And he was immediately giving his reason why he was there. It, it might not be anything, right. but it just kind of stuck out to me. It, like the fact that he made this weird statement to the operator without her asking why he was there. It just feels a little bit off to me. Now that you say it, yeah, but I, yeah. I wouldn't have picked it out on my own. And all I, all I keep thinking is like, I would be a fucking mess. I just had a little gut feeling yeah of why are you making your excuse for why you were there right it's not about you Tim. like i mean not right now i feel like he could have been i don't know i feel like i know he, I, I feel like he was trying to like explain in his head but it just maybe i don't know yeah i don't know the very first emt on the scene to 50 depot road that day was jan worthington krista's own cousin Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. When crime scene investigators arrived, it was clear that Krista Worthington was deceased. She was stabbed through her trapezius to the point that the knife blade went directly and fully through her body, hitting the wooden plank flooring underneath her. Mm. Blood was coming out through her nose, from her mouth, from under her head, and her body was bloody. 
There were Cheerios scattered about, mm. Ava's sippy cup, and Ava's own bloody footprints surrounding her mother's body. Ugh. We're going to get into the aftermath of Ava being left alone in a home with her violently attacked and now deceased mother. But first, I want to talk about Krista Worthington, who she was, what she was like, and how she ended up being murdered in her own home in January of 2002. So first, let's take it back a couple of generations. Krista's grandfather's name was John Worthington, although he went by Pop. He was an incredibly important figure in Tarot, Massachusetts. He was a decorated World War One and World War II veteran. Wow. Pop actually brought jobs back to the community when he came home from the war by reopening a fish processing plant. Pop was on the town board, and he was one of the original advocates for the Cape Cod Seashore. It was said that John, Pop, Worthington, was successful, well-liked, and high-class. Pop loaned money out to friends and neighbors who were unable to pay their property taxes. Times were hard, obviously, and he had the money, so why not help? It wasn't like there was nothing in it for him, because if the friends and neighbors ended up defaulting again on their payments, the deeds to their land and the homes was automatically given over to Pop. Oh, I see, Pop. Yeah. I see. So Pop would gain the property and the homes. People have said that that seems kind of like, you know, a little bit shady. Unfair, kind <laughs> yeah. of. like Yeah. But yeah. in the community of Tarot, Pop really was well-respected and loved even. He was down to earth and he was willing to help people, even if only because he got the benefits in the end. Right. <laughs> Despite being high class and having more money than he knew what to do with, he'd invite anyone in for dinner or drinks. And that was just like the personality factor that was that the town loved about him. Mm -hmm. Pop was married to a super smart woman named Ada Worthington, who was nicknamed Tiny. She was nearly six feet tall. <laughs> so it was clearly like a little pun, right? Tiny. Uh-huh. Tiny created a business called Cape Cod Fishnet Industries from the ground up. Wow, and, Tiny. Like, think about the time that this was so, in. Tiny and Pop. Tiny and Pop. Tiny was so uber successful with her company that her accessories were sold in Bergdorf's and were featured in high-end magazines like Vogue and Mademoiselle. Ooh, mm -hmm. Wow. Pop and Tiny went on to have Christopher, nicknamed Toppy Worthington. <laughs> I'm sorry. We got Pop, Tiny, and Toppy. Yeah. Who's next? <laughs> and Toppy is actually Chris's father. Okay. So we're getting closer. We're getting warmer. All right. Toppy was a lawyer who received his education at Harvard Law. He worked in Boston as a prosecutor and married a woman named Gloria. Gloria was incredibly artistic, and she took up work as an artist in town. Aw, and they called her Go-Go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't think she ever had a nickname, or they didn't tell me about it. Well, it's Go-Go. She never really quite felt like she belonged with the Worthington family. People in town said that Toppy married beneath him, which is just really gross and That's sad. That's a dick thing to say. Yeah, right? When he married Gloria, he married beneath him, and that he only married her because he got her pregnant. Uh, and that he did. Yeah. He did. Um, and that baby that Toppy and Gloria got pregnant with was Krista Worthington. Okay. Krista Worthington was a little Christmas baby born on December 23rd of 1956. Mm. Is that why her name's Krista? I never thought about that. Christmas. But it very well could be. Because it's spelled like that, right? It is. C-H-R-I-S-T-A. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I bet that's why. She participated in things like ballet class and piano lessons, and on the outside, she was a generally happy person. But inside the walls of her own home, though, life could be rather tough. That was mainly due to her parents' marriage. Yeah. And she kind of just got the brunt of 
the fighting mm-hmm. and the lack of love between them. Tappy and Gloria weren't having the best time. Tappy was known to have affairs. Like, this was a known thing, mm-hmm. which is wild to me. Yeah. Gloria even found a photograph of a woman that he was having an affair with tucked in between two credit cards in his wallet. Dang. Honestly. You're carrying her picture why around, you, Toppy? Right. Toppy, why did you have to carry a picture around? Wasn't fucking her enough? God. Toppy was a heavy drinker, and when he drank, he just got worse. It never helps. No. He wasn't the best dude to be around when he wasn't drunk, and then when he was drinking, it was just like an entirely other ball game. Mm-hmm. It's said that when he was drinking, both Gloria and Kristen knew that they needed to make themselves scarce and stay mm. away from him, which like as a child, like if you know... Like, oh, my dad's personality, hes it's going to be even worse. Like, if you know enough to know that, yeah. that's sad. That's pathetic. That's no way for a child or anybody to live. Right. So I don't know if it was mainly just verbal abuse when he was drinking or maybe all the time mm-hmm. or if it ever got physical as well. I do know that, like, years later, Krista went on to join the, I think it's like Al-Anon or something. It's basically AA for family members of people who have drinking problems. Oh, okay. So it's safe to say it really impacted her. So it's almost as if her family was split down the middle. Gloria was kind of just living her life. Toppy was living his. And then Krista was just kind of trying to balance and figure out and test the waters between the two. Both Gloria and Toppy were very socially awkward and just a bit eccentric. And this just made things even more difficult for Krista. The families spent their summers in Tarot, where the Worthington family is from. Krista had a friend that would sometimes go with her family to Tarot on vacations. The friend later said, like after all of the stuff that I'm about to tell you unfolds, that it seemed like some of the Worthingtons didn't really accept Krista either. Oh, so really? they didn't accept her mother. And then because she was like a byproduct of her mother, mm-hmm. they just didn't really accept her either. Krista did have a deep love for her grandparents, Pop and Tiny. I was wondering how her relationship was with them. Yeah. Pop and Tiny. Yeah, it was said that she was very, very close to them. In high school, Krista flourished. She was a cheerleader. She was part of the literary magazine. She loved to write. She loved to do all things artistic and creative. She was very much like her mother, Gloria, in that aspect. She was voted to have the quote-unquote best smile and be quote-unquote the most popular. Hmm. Yeah, so she was having a good time in high school, it sounds like. But mid-flourish, though, she and her high school boyfriend, John, got pregnant. They ultimately decided that they were too young to start a family, and they terminated the pregnancy. Krista was a relatively good kid and a relatively good teenager, but she did shoplift a couple times. It was for petty things, small things like costume jewelry and clothes, Mm -hmm. which we know, like we never shoplifted, I don't think. Did you shoplift? I didn't. No, but I had heard about things like in high school where kids would like try to be cool and like sneak like a mascara or something like they were dared to do it. So I'm wondering if that was like what happened with her too. Yeah, I would say it's a pretty common thing for high school just to steal like a lipstick or something right once krista graduated from high school she continued her education at vassar college vassar is a private liberal arts college Mm -hmm. vassar had actually just become co-ed before that it was the only girls college students who were going to vassar at the time remember that krista would walk around campus with a stack of books as big as her She scored a solo or single dorm room in her very first year as a freshman, which I guess is hard. I don't know. I didn't go to college. Uh, No, same, but (laughs) Um, (laughs) that would, 
I always thought it would be hell to share a little tiny room. I don't right? want to share right? room. I want my own room now. Exactly. One million percent. Okay, anyway. But she this was isn't a- about my wants and needs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was said that Krista was able to obtain one of these private rooms by telling Vassar that she had specific needs that wouldn't be conducive or fair to a roommate, like heavy periods and anxiety. Same. So I could have said that. Maybe. At my fake college. Who knows if it would have worked. Got a single dorm. Knowing our luck, they would have been like, fucking deal with it. Get in there with your 18 roommates. Spray the Lysol and take a pill. Krista spent most of her freshman year at Vassar nestled away inside of her solo dorm room. She spent her time studying, reading, and writing. And she was a perfectionist, but also a procrastinator. And I feel that on a holy fucking level. A friend of hers at the time said that she could get something done in 10 hours that other students would take two weeks to complete. Wow. So basically, she waited until the last minute, but it was still wonderful and perfect. And she did it completely Mm -hmm. in a short amount of time. Krista's life in college was vastly different than in high school. In high school, everyone knew her. She was popular. She was on sports teams and in clubs. And don't forget about being voted most popular and best smile. But in college, that was a whole new world and a whole new obstacle for her. She withdrew, to put it simply. Her peers knew of her, but they didn't really know her. You know what I mean? Yeah. She didn't make a point to try and be that girl anymore. The girl with the best smile. The most popular girl. The girl who had it all. She wasn't trying to be that. She didn't want to be that. I mean, it was probably exhausting. Right? She wanted to be in her room reading and writing and studying. That's what it seemed like from the outside anyway. As far as boyfriends go, she had very high standards that most men couldn't live up to. There was a freshman male classmate when she was a senior, and supposedly he had this huge crush on her. He said that she had a lot of older male suitors who would come visit her on campus long after they had graduated. Wow. So there was a lot of people pining over Krista, Mm -hmm. but she wasn't really, like, giving many of them a time of day. They they weren't living up to her high standards. Yeah, that's just how it is, boys. I'm super sorry about it. Super sorry. In the summer of 1977, Krista graduated with honors and moved to Manhattan, New York. She ended up taking on work as a paralegal when writing gigs weren't easy to come by for her. In 1979, though, Krista interviewed for and ended up accepting the position of assistant to the beauty editor for Cosmopolitan magazine. Holy shit. Think of the free product. Right? Damn. So many free products. Dream job. Immediately, people around her were like, I'm sorry, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because Krista and fashion, Krista and cosmopolitan, Krista and makeup did not go together. While Krista was popular and beautiful and all of those coveted things in high school, she never was really one to care or put a ton of effort into her clothes, her style, or her makeup. Mm-hmm. So when people found out that she was working for cosmopolitan, they just couldn't wrap their minds around it. Yeah. It's said that Krista herself even said that she wasn't really into the fashion industry, she wasn't even into the beauty industry and that they were just industries without much depth to them to her Mm -hmm. after working for cosmo she then moved on to working for women's wear daily also known as wwd she was an accessories editor there at wwd krista ended up being taken under the wing of john fairchild who has been described as a mentor kind of like a mentor type to krista John Fairchild was the editor-in-chief of WWD and went on to found W Magazine. John Fairchild taught Krista a lot about the fashion industry and kind of like the business behind it. 
Now, even though Krista wasn't exactly enthralled by the fashion world or its accessories, she still put her all into every single project she worked on. It's said that every single article or piece that she wrote, whether it was on a scarf or a necklace or whatever, it didn't matter. She would dig very, very deep into that accessory. She would find its origin where it was first made, where it was first worn, why? And she would put all of that into her writing. In 1981, Tappy ended up gifting $40,000 to Krista mm -hmm, for an apartment in Grand Mercy Park. The apartment was fairly small, but it was hers, and she just really loved it. She loved it so much that she stayed there for another 15 years. Wow. In 1983, Krista relocated to Paris. Now, you might think that that's weird because I just said 1981, she got the apartment and she stayed there for 15 years, but she keeps the apartment. Oh, okay. Too, okay. So she like purchased just, it? Yeah. Of, yes. Okay, I yep. get it. But, okay. So, in 1983, Krista was relocated to Paris to be a fashion editor for both WWD and W magazines. So, she's essentially, like, thrust off into Paris from New York. Quite literally anyone who is obsessed with fashion's dream. Not hers, but anyone yeah. who's obsessed with fashion. She's in her 20s. She's in Paris. She's living her best life. She went to fashion shows and big parties. She met brilliant, talented fashion designers and lived an incredibly high society type of life. The men that she encountered while in Paris, like the ones that worked for the magazines, were said to not have treated her too well. Hmm. They were basically the opposite of feminists. So piles of poo. <laughs> yeah. Who didn't really I mean, think that women could do the same job as a man. Basically. They were said to have like a a good old boys club. Yeah. Basically. And they just looked down on her, really. That didn't stop her though. Nothing ever did detour her from anything that she set out to do. Good. I'm not sure if they looked down on her because she was a woman or because of how she dressed. Because, you know, fashion snobs, mm -hmm. people in the fashion world who have to have pleated whatevers and like fucking <laughs> bow ties, pleated ties, <laughs> fucking yeah. cashmere. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know anything about fashion, High but heels. they do. Yeah. They're, they're toes. I'm literally wearing slippers. So <laughs> Glittery slippers. They're, they're glittery slippers. <laughs> I'm wearing the same clothes I worked out in. <laughs> I'm, I'm disgusting. Hi, fashion but, times. Yeah. But so Krista never put a lot of effort into what she wore. And these men were probably like, oh, you know, she's wearing like flea market skirt which is a true thing that mm -hmm. her mother said that she wore and you know a, a sweater with a cat on it from 1902 yeah like that she can't do a good job right you know what i mean according to my niece it's so funny according to my teenage niece you're not cool now unless you get all your clothes from the thrift store yeah right so what? now krista then would yes. be cool now oh for sure i mean so like basically just to put it into perspective, even though Krista was kind of hurled into this big time fashion magazine editor life in Paris, she still dressed how she always did. She didn't get some glamorous makeover like Anne Hathaway and the Devil Wears Prada. In fact, her mother Gloria went to Paris to visit her on occasion, like what I was just telling you about the flea market skirt. Mm -hmm. Krista was wearing, according to Gloria, Krista was wearing an inside out sweatshirt and a long skirt from a flea market. She just wanted to stay true to who she was and be comfortable. Yeah, whatever. Isn't that what we're all fucking striving for? Right. During her time in Paris, Krista had a lot of sex, to put it bluntly. Good for there's, her. Yeah, there's no other way to say it, yeah. you know? Yeah. She fornicated. When in Paris. <laughs> 
some of the men that she was expressing her sexuality with were married men. And it isn't known if she was made aware of this or if the man or the men who were married just kept her in the dark about it. Mm -hmm. Some of her friends, apparently, reportedly, allegedly, later said that they believed that she did know. I don't know how they would know, but that was their thought. Um, And they thought that she slept with married men because they were unavailable and it would prevent her from growing too attached. I mean... Sounds like some psychotherapy shit, though. Yeah. Like, why are we diagnosing her sexuality things? Right. People said that Krista liked to go for the, quote, dark and tortured types with baggage, end quote. I mean... Continue. In 1987, Krista was asked to be the acting bureau chief at WWD. But... Not long after being asked, they brought in a man. Of course they did. Mm-hmm, who worked in advertising and promotions previously okay. and kicked her down back to her old position. Well, that's not fair Mm-mm. or allowed. No. So uh, she subsequently left WWD and moved to London. Fine. Like any woman who wants to stand up for herself does. Right. She quits and she moves to London. Bye. Good for her. Goodbye. Krista was basically like, well, that's a slap in the face and it's an insult. She was just over it and ready to move on. So move on she did to London. When she arrived in London, she started calling up old connections from having worked at WWD. And she was able to pick up some freelance gigs that paid her bills for the duration of the time that she was in London. She ended up moving back to New York, back into that apartment that she bought. Mm -hmm. And she worked for Elle magazine for a period of time. And she started dating a man named Leopold Stanislas Stan Stakowski. If you Google him, so we're just going to call him Stan. If you Google him, one of the very, like I did, (laughs) one of the very first sites that comes up says his name with, in parentheses, Anderson Cooper's brother. Oh, (laughs) Oh, (laughs) that's how he's known. His father, Leopold Anthony, was a brilliant conductor, I guess, and he was even featured in Walt Disney's Fantasia. Hmm. Mm -hmm. He went on to conduct all over the damn place, here and there, and he just built up a huge name for himself and made a ton of money while doing it. All right. Apparently, though, he was an alcoholic. So little Stan had to deal with like a lot of the same issues that Krista did growing up and having an alcoholic for a father. So they bonded over that. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. It basically just kind of drew her in to Stan. His family had also put a lot of pressure on him, too. So to Krista, it was like they were the same type of, quote-unquote, damaged souls. Krista was happy. And it was like somehow these they found each other. Mm-hmm. Stan was really good looking. He had a lot of money, obviously, from his family's conducting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty, despite being rich. Those These were all qualities that were very attractive to Krista. Sure. Mm-hmm. Krista thought that this dude may be more than just a fling. But Stan didn't feel the same way about her. Oh, no. No. He had just gotten out of a very serious relationship, and he wasn't ready by any stretch to jump back into another one. So that ended, and Krista kept on going with her job at Elle magazine, and she just kind of fell into a routine of complacency. She ended up bouncing over from Elle magazine to J. Crew for a period of time. It was almost like she was just kind of going through the motions, being an adult, living alone, doing everything alone, and not necessarily enjoying any of it. 
it was said that she had aspirations of writing her own novel. She had always loved writing. Like she, she did it when she was in high school. She tried to do some freelance stuff and she was always very talented at it, but she could just never get herself to sit down and do it. Krista ended up moving on from Stan and she started dating Thomas Churchwell, who was also known as the Amazing Tarquin. Why? <laughs> this happened sometime in 1998. Thomas, or Tarquin, was a magician who performed around New York City. So oh. that's, that was like a stage name. All right. Tarquin once said, quote, she had those eyes that would melt you, that probably had melted every man she was with. End quote. I wish I wish someone would say that about me. Dang, Tarquin. Right. Shit. I, I think you're in love, Tarquin. It was said that the amazing Tarquin, felt like Krista was secretly trying to get pregnant by him. Oh. Uh, Apparently, she had baby fever, and when he approached her and asked her flat out, she was like, yeah, I am. Oh, wow. Yep, I want a baby. Okay. But I don't need anything from you, Krista said. She wanted a donor. Yeah, and we'll get to that. She was like, I'll take the baby and raise it on my own, and you can go on living your life as um, the amazing Tarquin. Yeah. But But you can't just think about how that would make him feel. Yeah. And truly, Tarquin was like, uh, no, that's not how this works. Yeah, I don't want some rando baby out there of mine. Yeah. So he booked it and ran for the hills. Okay, fair enough. After the amazing Tarquin left, Krista started really getting anxious about having a baby. She finally felt like she was ready to have a baby, like she was pregnant in high school. She wasn't ready at that time. Right. And now she's like, you know, I've been a big time fashion editor. Like, I'm ready for a baby. I'm I'm ready to to chill. I've Mm -hmm. got the money. I've got the means. I've got the apartment. I'm good. She felt like she was just totally, fully capable. She could give a baby everything it deserved. So she started looking into sperm donors, and she even ended up writing a piece about it in the Harper's Bazaar magazine. Oh, okay. She joined a group called Single Mothers by Choice. She even went on to the Lisa Gibbons show to talk about the group and try to normalize women deciding that they wanted to be single mothers and not losing the chance to have children just due to the fact that they couldn't find the right partner. Unfortunately, though, people were kind of sort of close-minded mm-hmm. about this, and the the audience booed her, oh. and they thought that she was selfish for wanting to bring a child into the world with only one parent in the home. I was curious about this group. Yeah. And I looked it up, and they still are, like, going strong. They have I've a, heard of it before. Yeah, they have a website. It says that they've been around for 40 years, and it's singlemothersbychoice.org, and this is what it says about their group. A single mother by choice, SMC, is a woman willing to take the initiative. Her child might have been conceived or adopted. What we all have in common is a willingness to take on the joys and responsibilities of raising a child, knowing that we will be parenting alone, at least at the outset. Our goals are to offer support and information to single women who are considering or have chosen motherhood to provide a peer group for our children and to enhance the public's understanding of single mothers by choice. Single mothers by choice is not an advocacy group. We do not feel it is fair to urge a woman who may not have the emotional or financial resources or who does not feel she would be able to handle single parenting to get into an impractical or overextended situation. Single parenting is challenging enough for the woman who is sure and prepared. 
In the absence of a good partnership and with the rate of divorce as high as it is, we believe and research has shown that being raised by a caring and competent single parent is definitely a viable option. The word choice in our name has two implications. We have made a serious and thoughtful decision to take on the responsibility of raising a child by ourselves, and we have chosen not to bring a child into a relationship that is not a satisfactory one. So Krista, getting older and wanting a baby and not being able to find someone who she wanted, she had high standards, Mm -hmm. she felt very drawn to this group. She continued to look for a donor, and when she went to the doctor to have an exam, she received the devastating news that she was premenopausal. Krista was saddened and obviously shocked, and she just couldn't believe that after all of these years and finally feeling ready, that she may never have a child of her own. Yeah. And if this wasn't hard enough, like, news to digest, Gloria, Krista's mother, got the news that she had colon cancer. So in 1997, Krista packed up her New York apartment and headed home to be closer to her mom. She ended up actually moving to Turo, which is where her family spent all those summers together. And that's where Gloria was living at this point. She started living in her grandmother's cottage, Tiny, Tiny's cottage. Oh, yeah. And it was nicknamed Tiny's Hut. And it was living in Tiny's Hut that Krista met a man named Tony Jacket. Jacket? Like, take off your pants and jacket. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> like that. Like a jacket, you know, yeah. that you put on your body. Right. Tony Jacket was the shellfish constable for Provincetown. This meant that he would go along checking for people digging for clams to ask if they had the proper license. I was going to ask if that had anything to do with fish <laughs> <laughs> or clams or if that was just like the name of the area. Yeah. The shellfish neighborhood. <laughs> nope, it was a fish constable. It, it, All yes. Right. Honestly. Um, and if they didn't have the proper the proper license, he would sell it to them. Or they couldn't dig. They had to go home. Mm-hmm. Tony was also in charge of testing the water quality. His office was actually directly across from Tiny's hut. Oh, okay. So that's they ran into each other, mm-hmm. probably literally. Yeah. Like yeah. a meet cute. Krista was no stranger to his office because while she lived across from it, she also frequented it because she wanted to complain. Okay. She hated the porta potties in such close proximity to her cottage. Same. The noise. Same. The people in general. Same. <laughs> no, the people. I was just waiting. The people who would park their boats in front of her place when the parking lot next to her was full. Yeah, fuck that. Same. It was just a whole host of like annoying issues that she dealt with, and yeah. she wasn't shy about letting Tony know about them. From the very first time that Krista and Tony saw each other, when she went in to complain one day, they had instant chemistry. You know when you see someone and you just get that overwhelming feeling, maybe you don't, maybe I don't either, but, (laughs) or you say like a few words to each other and you just know that person is your person, maybe not even romantically, but like a friendship could even start that way. There's a vibe. Yeah. That was Tony and Krista. All right. The only issue was Tony was married. To a woman named Susan, who at one time been labeled as, quote, the most beautiful woman in her high school. Lots of labels, right? All right. Well, Krista was the best Mm -hmm. smile and And, most popular. Yeah, right. You know that I was voted in the yearbook most unique, which is just a nice way of saying she's a fucking freak. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I I was even on the radar. (laughs) 
Tony and Susan hadn't been high school sweethearts. Susan actually married someone else first, and she adopted two little babies Aww. with that man. Shortly after adopting, the two divorced, and Susan and Tony started dating. Susan and her mother were actually over at Susan's aunt's house when Susan's mom spotted Tony outside and invited him in for coffee, and the rest was basically history. I don't know if he was just, like, randomly walking down the street. <laughs> he and was her looking mom was for like, people doing illegal clamming. Uh, true. Her mom was like, oh, he's cute. I'm going to set her up with my... I'm going <laughs> hey, to set him up with my daughter. Get in here, Jacket. Despite Susan being four years older than Tony, the two fell, and they fell hard for each other. They got pregnant, and they had four of their own children, plus the two that she had adopted, totaling six little babes running around. Hmm. That's a lot of babes. Tony found another love after Susan, and this time the love was named Josephine J. But this time it was a boat, not a woman. Oh. In 1984, Tony wasn't making much money, and he was approached by men and asked to captain a boat from Columbia to Boston Harbor. Oh, wow. Did he do it? Well, if he would do it, he would get $2 million. Wait, I'll do it. But the catch, there was a catch. There's always a catch when there's $2 million involved. True. The catch was the boat would have $40,000 of marijuana on it. I was going to say cocaine. And this was in 84. Okay. He politely declined. Yeah. But then, later, he decided he wanted to accept the offer because he was like, $2 million? Yeah. I'll do it. For sure. Thank you. Sign me up. But they had already found someone else. Oh, dang. However, Tony could still help by finding a docking area. So the man who decided that he would do it, his name is Skip. So Skip and Tony hammer out the details and they set sail. All is going to plan perfectly until they catch wind of potential trouble with the Coast Guard. They start shitting bricks. mm -hmm, Yeah, I think that they probably freaked the hell out Mm -hmm. they decided it would be too risky to move forward and they dock in provincetown they ended up being so nervous that they tried to sink the boat with the (laughs) marijuana in it no and the plant so they do whatever they were going to do to try and sink it the plan was to dive down and get the marijuana later no it's so weird to me. That's that so much thing. effort. Like, how, how? How? So much effort. And maybe this would have worked, but we won't ever know because the boat didn't sink. <laughs> so what happened? <laughs> so the fuel tank was empty and Skip and Tony left, but the boat was spotted. <laughs> like, they just so assumed they just that it would it work. There, like... Yeah, they just assumed that it was oh, start sinking. Oh, so they didn't watch it sink. No. They're just like, this no. is going to so, sink and we're yep, leaving. Bye. Yep. So they got a little ahead of themselves. Yeah. And the boat was only, it was spotted when it was only half submerged and authorities <laughs> found it. In order to protect himself after all of this dumbassery, Tony became a state's witness and basically outed everyone. Jacket, come on. Things didn't get better for Tony Jacket, however. The mortgage was late, they weren't making money, and they lost their house. And all that weed. Ironically enough, Josephine did sink. His So his boat that he loved and wanted did sink, but he oh, couldn't get the other boat to sink. Josephine. Yeah, Josephine J is gone. <sighs> and this is when he gets the shellfish constable job. He also became a part-time harbor master around this time as well, and this is when he meets Krista Worthington, the beautiful woman shacking up across the street from his office. Some accounts paint Krista as a kind of seductress, always going over there and tempting him mm. and seducing him and mm. blah, blah, blah. It takes two. Mm, you know what I mean? Yeah. It takes two. Yeah. Okay, so switching avenues back to Krista's parents. Gloria told Krista that Toppy was always out riding his bike and buying shoes. Oh, Toppy. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? 
It turns out Tappy had started dating Elizabeth Porter, who was like 50-ish years younger than him. Oh, no. And she worked at a shoe store. Oh, this, oh. Imagine so that. So he had a sudden need for some loafers. Truly. It was, and, and this affair was like, it was common knowledge. Tappy didn't try to hide the fact that he was dating her. Well, and, and he had always kind of done that, right? Right. It's just been out in the open right. with other women. Right. And there's more on these two in a few minutes. Meanwhile, Krista ends up moving out of Tiny's hut, and she moves into a bungalow at 50 Depot Road. Sound is that, familiar? Is that the house from the beginning? Yeah. Oh, we're getting there, huh? <sighs> yeah. So Tony stopped seeing her at the office because she moved, you know? Yeah. So she didn't have to go and complain about the porta potties <laughs> <Right>. anymore. <laughs> that wasn't a problem for her now. It was mm -mm. whoever moved into Tiny's hut. So Tony wanted to see her clearly and he decided to go to a beach that she was known to frequent in hopes of catching her eye there in hopes of catching her doing illegal clams mm -hmm. and fighting her <laughs> so who was the damn seductress now yeah you know what jacket. i mean you're following her jacket little shit biscuit krista and tony do in fact see each other and krista invites him over to her new home for tea we don't know without a doubt that Krista knew that Tony was married with a wife and six children, but Tarot was a small town. I was just going to say that. It would be harder for her not to know yeah. than to know. Tony said that Krista was a fatal attraction Ooh. and the complete and total opposite of his wife, Susan. Krista had brown hair. Susan had blonde. Krista wasn't tied down with six children like Susan. Krista was a like a free spirit. And she was sarcastic and witty and sharp. And he was just automatically, magnetically drawn to her. Krista had told Tony that they could, quote, use each other, end quote. And, quote, that is how they do it in Europe, end quote. But apparently that's kind of how it went. And he said that he never once worried that she was going to, like, latch on to him. He said that she was more of a loner, and he found this relationship as one that he could just have on the side. Yeah, that works out well, Jacket. Mm -hmm. Always. Tony loved Susan, his wife, but he was also just drawn to Krista, and he wanted her too. In true Krista fashion, she ends up leaving Tarot and going back to New York for a bit. She took up some standard freelance gigs, but she always went home on the weekends to see her mom, Gloria, who was sick, mm -hmm. and her lover, Tony. In May of 1998, she sold her Grand Mercy apartment and moved into the bungalow at 50 Depot Road for good. Eventually, everyone in town realized that Tony and Krista were having an affair. I mean... It's a small town. Right. They gossip. They talk. My mom used to say, growing up in Mazan, mm -hmm. where there was a thousand people. Yeah. Katie, watch what you do because there's always someone watching. And it was true. It was said that Susan was the last to know, the very last to know. Mm. Krista soon realized that Tony was never leaving Susan and that she felt more attached to him than she had ever thought that she would. Tony was under the assumption that she could never get pregnant. That was something that she had told him. And it was going to be difficult, as per the doctor said, and with the whole premenopause thing. Mm -hmm. She also had a latex allergy, so they, she wasn't on birth control, and she wasn't using protection. Tony later said that she laid in bed after having sex with her hips up. Yeah. And so that kind of led people to speculate that she was intentionally trying to get pregnant again. And she did this yeah. time she did get pregnant and tony flipped his ever loving shit krista told tony that she wanted to raise the baby on her own 
She also said that no one ever needed to know, but honestly, people already knew. Everyone saw her growing belly, and they just knew that it was Tony's. It wasn't hard to put two and two together. People weren't dumb. Mm -hmm. But Tony ended up keeping that secret from Susan for nearly two years. So after the baby's born. Wow. Do you think Susan just didn't want to accept it? I don't know. I don't know. Damn. Shortly after Krista became pregnant, Tony started ghosting her avoiding her, doing everything he could do to not be around her and their unborn baby. And when he would see her, like walking down the street in their small town of Tyrell, he would bolt off in the other direction. Around this time, Gloria found out that her colon cancer was getting worse. So Krista actually moved in with her to help care for her. Tappy's dumbass was still dating that young woman. He had an appraiser come to the house so it would be ready to sell once Gloria died. What the fuck, Tappy? Isn't that fucked up? I either read about this or heard about it, but this was a very heartbreaking thing that I wasn't going to put in here, but I wanted to because it was just so sad to me. It was said that Gloria and Krista would lay in Gloria's bed together, and Gloria would place her hand on her daughter's stomach, just hoping to feel her grandbaby kick. A grandbaby that she knew she would never be able to meet in person. (sighs) Gloria passed away one week before Krista gave birth to Mm. her beautiful little girl, Ava. Ava's birth certificate did not cite Tony as a father. In fact, it didn't have a father's name at all. Now, switching lanes back to Toppy and Elizabeth. So Gloria passed away. The home is sold. Toppy moves to a new home, a ranch, and moves his girlfriend in partially. But Toppy was also paying for a boarding house in Quincy for Elizabeth. Toppy told the landlord that Elizabeth, or sometimes I'll call her Beth, was his daughter when he rented it for her. Weird. It's so strange and weird and just like, what What Why? was the reason behind that? So he didn't get judged? I, I don't know, but this actually sparked rumors that Elizabeth was his daughter. Oh, no. Like, like a worse Like a daughter from someone that he had cheated on Gloria with. Yeah. But apparently there was a DNA test conducted at some point and it was determined that that was just a rumor. Okay. Now, speaking of Elizabeth, she was the daughter of a cop and she started working as an escort and became addicted to heroin. She really just fell down this rabbit hole of very toxic behaviors with the drugs. Uh And she had a lengthy criminal record due to those behaviors. Side note, there's a man named Dr. Dirk Grenadier who works at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And it's the second largest teaching hospital of Harvard. Dr. Dirk was charged with murdering Mabel. His wife. Oh. This is a ride. This whole Krista Worthington. After his wife found out that he was paying escorts for sexual acts. And who was one of the escorts that was pleasing Dr. Dirk? Elizabeth Porter. Oh, wow. Elizabeth actually even testified during his trial, stating that she was an escort for him. I'm going to start referring to Elizabeth as Beth, a nickname that she went by. Beth was dating a guy named Ed Hall, who was also an addict. So, to put this simply... Toppy was married to Gloria, but he was dating Elizabeth. Elizabeth was dating Toppy, but she was also dating Ed. So there's like four people here, Mm -hmm. okay? So Beth and Ed were addicts, and Beth was tested, and it was determined that she was HIV positive. For all of these reasons, the drugs, the age difference, and the terrible criminal record, Krista wasn't a fan of Beth or the relationship that she had with Toppy. Krista saw her inheritance being wasted on Beth. She saw Beth using Toppy. She told them both 
she flat out told Toppy and Beth that she didn't agree with their relationship. She was very vocal about it. She wasn't just like, oh, I don't like my dad's girlfriend, but I'm going to let him do his thing. Mm -hmm. She straight up told the two of them to their face that Beth was trouble. Okay, so Gloria passed away. Ava was born. And Krista is immediately smitten by Ava. Now, Tony doesn't meet Ava for over a year. So Ava's born. Mm-hmm. He has no interaction with her for over a year. I mean, it's true that Krista said that she didn't want anything from him, but you would think that the man would want to meet his daughter. I right. don't know. He, But he didn't try to. He ran the other way. Krista decided to hire Ellen Webb to help with Ava and her house. Krista wasn't a good housekeeper. She never claimed to be, and she despised cleaning. Which I get. Mm -hmm. Same. She still struggled leaving Ava with her because she wanted Ava to herself all the time. But she knew that she needed a break. Ava also nursed and she nursed a lot, making it harder to leave her. Krista suffered from mild PPD. She was anxious, an issue that obviously she had anxiety before. But after having Ava... The anxiousness and the anxiety only intensified. At some point after Ava was born and Ellen was in the picture, Ellen introduced Krista to a man named Tim Arnold. Ring a bell? Mm-hmm. The man who ends up finding Krista's body. Yeah. It's said that Tim was a nice dude that Ellen set her up with because she felt the two would make a great pair. Tim was seemingly Tony Jacket's polar opposite. He was very creative. He was tall. He was slender. He had glasses. He had dusty brown hair and light-colored eyes. Tim also had his struggles, though. He was divorced. He had children with his previous partner, and he also had some medical issues that he had surgeries for. He experienced annoying bouts of double vision and balance issues, and he lived with Robert, his dad, who drove him everywhere due to the double vision problem. Oh, wow. Tim also wrote a book, a children's book, called hmm. The Winter Mittens. I told you he was creative. Yeah. Yeah. That's cute. At first... Unless Chris- he's a killer, then I think that's not cute. Yeah, then nothing he did was cute. At first, Krista really liked Tim Arnold. It seemed like Ellen had really outdone herself by introducing the two of them to each other. Krista felt like Tim didn't exactly realize how good-looking he was, that maybe he was lacking in his self-confidence a bit. It also helped that Tim was really good with Ava. And Ava called Tim, Tim Mom. Oh. Isn't that cute? (laughs) That is cute. Tim had his own children, so he was familiar with kids, and the relationship just seemed to flow really well. However, the relationship between Krista and Tim started to get very hot and cold. Krista was critical of Tim. She was critical by nature, obviously, Mm -hmm. but there were little things that Tim did that just set her off. And one of them was humming. (laughs) Yeah. When he would, so it's said that Tim would hum when he was happy or feeling upbeat or jovious, jovial. (laughs) Same thing. Jovious. I mean, yeah. He, so he would hum and Krista would cut him off saying something like, stop. I don't want Ava to be a hummer. Oh, really? Yeah. Tim had actually also moved into Krista's bungalow at 50 Depot Road, but they slept in different bedrooms because Ava and Krista slept together in the same bed. It's said that he sacrificed a lot for Krista, and it was always just about what she wanted. They lived together for just around six months before the criticizing and the arguing and general annoyance that Krista had for Tim boiled over. Krista also worried that he would hurt Ava, not 
intentionally, but by tripping because of the balance issues. Oh, yeah. Or like maybe dropping her. Uh So ultimately, Krista and Tim decided to just be friends instead of pursuing their romantic relationship. And Tim moved back in with his father, Robert. It's said that there were times that Tim would randomly show up at the bungalow, like come over unannounced because they lived so close. Yeah. And Krista was annoyed by his like unannounced visits. I would be too. So one of these times that he showed up out of the blue, he was standing in her kitchen and she had just had enough of it. She told him that he needed to stop doing that, that he should call before visiting. And that was that. Tim still held out hope, though, that maybe eventually things could work out between the two of them. So now switching back to Tony Jacket. Tony finally met Ava when she was 18 months old. He had definitely missed out on a lot of the cute little milestones like Ava sitting up on her own and trying to hold foods and crawling and Mm -hmm. walking and all of that. Krista ended up asking Tony to put Ava on his health insurance and she ended up asking for child support too, which I know has been like a point of contention with people who are following the case. Well, she said she didn't want anything from him and blah, blah, blah. My thought on it is even if she doesn't want anything from it, isn't that kind of like a responsibility? It is. Right? By asking Tony to put Ava on his health insurance and pay a monthly sum of child support, Krista knew Susan was going to find out. Oh, yeah. She gave Tony until Ava's second birthday to tell Susan about her. Tony told Bronwyn first, and Bronwyn was a daughter that he had. Okay. Bronwyn went to Krista's to meet Ava, and it seemed like they started a decent relationship, oddly enough. Without the mom knowing. Yeah. Without Susan knowing. That's why I said she was literally the last to know. That's sneaky. I don't Mm -hmm. like that. Tony ended up finally putting his big boy panties on and mustered up the courage to tell his wife, Susan, about all of the indiscretions and about his child that he had with another woman. Obviously, it didn't go very well. Susan left, and Susan went to her dad's, and she was visibly upset, crying, and she was looking for comfort from the man that she knew that she could always rely on and trust, and she told her dad, and her dad was basically like, calm down, it happens. No. Yeah. Wrong answer. Yeah. Dad. In the end, after thinking about it and mulling it over, Susan decided to stay with Tony. She stood by him. Yeah. She stood by him. She said that she accepted Krista and Ava, supposedly, and she also supposedly enjoyed Krista's company. Hmm. This is weird to me, but uh, bravo. Right, If that's the case, bravo. Tony and Susan would be able to take Ava for visits only if they wouldn't tell her that Tony was her dad. So Krista wanted to be the one to say, hey, this is your dad. Because she wasn't quite old enough to understand it yet. Right. So she wasn't wanting them to like be like, hey, I'm your dad. Call me daddy. Because she was two and a half and he wasn't in her life for a long time. Mm -hmm. The issues continued on with Toppy and Beth. So we're going back to Toppy and Beth. Krista asked. Okay, so this is kind of ballsy. Krista asked to manage Toppy's money through a lawyer saying that he was incompetent. Oh, yeah. like a conservatorship yeah. deal? Obviously, yeah. that didn't go anywhere because there was no like proof that he was incompetent. Sure. But Beth found out that she did this. And, and Beth's like, no, I want that money. Yeah. And reportedly, Beth told a friend that Krista was trying to, quote, take away her cash cow, end oh. quote. <laughs> Subtle, Beth. Yeah. <laughs> After everything went down with arguing with 
her father and Beth, Krista ended up changing her will to say a friend, a very close friend of hers named Amira, would be granted custody if anything ever happened to her. So apparently Toppy was the one who was on the will for that. Mm -hmm. And she did not want Ava anywhere near Elizabeth. Right. And she felt like Toppy was making really bad choices. Yeah. So she changed it in her will. You wouldn't think a lot of it, changing a will to reflect a a big life change, a big argument like that. Mm Mm-hmm. But the undertone of this act, it's, it was pretty ominous because not long after her will changed, Krista was dead. And that is where we are going to end it for part one. (sighs) Okay. Yeah. It's, and if you thought that that was a wild and like bumpy and rocky and like this and that and this and that ride, Mm -hmm. it's only going to get worse. I can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get into reading, watching, listening, Patreons. When we're done with reading, watching, listening, go to Patreon because part two is already going to be up for you. Everybody else, you will get it next Thursday. Katie, what are you reading, watching, and listening to? So I was telling you about this. We were walking last night and I was telling you that I listened to Shit Town, the podcast. And I know I'm like way late to the party on Shit Town or S Town, but um, holy fuck, I still can't get over it. Just from what you told me, which was just like a, a little two-minute That was barely, yeah, barely scraping the surface yeah, of I shit mean, town. Wow. It starts out as, like, I thought it was a true crime podcast. Yeah. I Which it kind of, a, a little bit is, kind of. Sure. Um, it, it starts out off, as, yeah, yeah. Starts out as, like, a true crime podcast, like an investigative podcast. And it goes in 50 million other directions, but it centers around this man named John. And I can't even, if you guys have listened to it, you get it. If not, I can't really even explain it. Just go listen to S-Town. Go look it up. Mm-hmm. See if it's something you want to listen to. It sounds very um, roller coastery. It's very roller coastery, And I was even having feelings during it. Like, I feel like I shouldn't be hearing this. Yeah. It's a very deep dive yeah. into this man's life and his, his mental health. And it's almost like, is this necessary? Should this have been put out into the world? Yeah. But it's also, I feel like, very important, too. And uh, it was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Beautiful and sad and gross and weird. I don't know. It I don't know how to like feel it. about Shit Town. But yeah. if you're interested, go and check that one out. Yeah. Go, go to Shit Town. Um, and then I listened to an uncover season about, I went back to fucking Canada, about um, the you satanic panic in the late 80s and nine, early 90s. And that was really interesting, too. I didn't realize how widespread it was throughout North America. Yeah. I didn't realize how many thousands of allegations and and all of that there were and how there was no proof of any of it. Right. And it it was like a mass hysteria almost. And it was very interesting to learn because there were experts on there. It was interesting to learn the psychology behind why and how that could happen. Yeah. How all these people could believe this how how they got the children to say these things and you know yeah it was wild so that was really good that was uncover i don't know what season it is i think it's season six it It might be be. yeah um i'm still not reading anything um haven't really watched anything either i'm just keeping up with handmaid's tale yeah cruel summer and handmaid's tale those are the ones that are on every week what about you well, I did. I had to listen and read a lot for this episode. Mm-hmm. So I listened to some of the episodes of A Killing on the Cape, 
which was from ABC Radio in 2020. There is six episodes, but I listened to like here and there bits and pieces of them. Yeah. And that's about this case, about the Krista Worthington case. I also started listening to the Someone Knows Something about Cheryl Shepard. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I think I'm a little ways through that. You talked about that one. You said you were like a few in. Yeah, I, I'm maybe like one more. or two more yeah. through that. And then obviously I read bits and pieces of two of the books that cover Krista Worthington's case. One of them is called Invisible Eden, a story of love and murder on Cape Cod. And that is by Maria Fluke. And the other one is called Reasonable Doubt by Chris McCowan. Okay. But yeah, that was really all I was, I've been reading, watching, listening. I've been mm-hmm. kind of, some. I've kind of just submersed myself in all things Krista Worthington yeah. this week. All right, guys, if you want to send us an email, do that at cruelandunusualthepod at gmail.com. Look at our Instagram at cruelandunusualthepod. I tweet. She tweets. At cruel, unusual, pod. Go to cruelincmedia.com for merch, show notes, source materials, Patreon shit, and more. And join our Facebook group, Cruel and Unusual, colon, the, the group. group. See you there. Or you can be a square. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you guys, we All have right. to go to bed. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Bye.